Hello. Uh, welcome to the third episode of Acamedia's podcast series called Talking Television in a Pandemic. I'm Hunter Hargraves, Associate Professor of Cinema and Television Arts at Cal State Fullerton and one of the co-organizers of this five-part series, along with Lynn Joyrich and Brandy Monk-Payton. We're very thankful to be a part of the Acamedia podcast sponsored by SCMS and the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies. Uh, today is our third episode exploring our relationship to television in these strange times. And our topic is phenomenology, which broadly speaking focuses on our experience of viewing television right now. The ways in which the pandemic has changed us as spectators and TV's ever-evolving bodies and affects. And to talk about these complex issues, we have with us today Kristen Warner, Associate Professor in the College of Communication and Information Sciences Department of Journalism and Creative Media at the University of Alabama. Hi there. Good to see you. Uh, hi, Kristen. We have uh, Karen Tonson, Professor of English, Gender and Sexuality Studies and American Studies and Ethnicity at USC. Hi, Hunter. Thanks for having me. Uh, a treat to have you, Karen. Uh, we have Suzanne Scott, Assistant Professor of Radio, TV, Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Hi, Suzanne. Hey there. Thanks so much for putting this series together. Oh, our pleasure. We're excited to open up these conversations uh, in the wake of a lack of conferences and, and other opportunities. And last but certainly not least, we have Hollis Griffin, Associate Professor of Communication at Denison University. Hi, Hunter. Nice to be here. So collectively, you have all published extensively on issues important to this conversation, issues of affect and popular culture, of the experiential dynamics of fan cultures, of representation in television. So I'm really excited to hear what you all have to say about television's role in public life right now. But before we get too deep, I want to acknowledge that we're recording this on June 1st and uh, that for close to the past week, America has been dealing with the aftershocks of yet another example of police brutality. Palpable rage felt by many after the murder of George Floyd has led to both peaceful and violent protests in many cities across the world. Right now, 21 U.S. states have activated the National Guard, and the city in which I live, Los Angeles, is under a 6 p.m. curfew tonight, as it has been uh, for the past couple days. So I want to ask this panel first how you are all dealing with and, and how you're all processing the events of the past week, and perhaps also how you've been thinking about our relationship to television and protests right now. I think that even if we are to... I, I know that in a previous episode, you discussed the quote about the, the uh, revolution not being televised. But I think that part of what we're all experiencing is that it's not just that the revolution will not be televised, but the layers of mediation and narration that come to interfere with what we're seeing and what we're witnessing and what we may be experiencing affectively in our lives as protest, as rebellion, is being reframed and remediated to us through everything from local newscasters here in Los Angeles talking about uh, wistfully about the restaurants that are being destroyed on Melrose to uh, you know, the constant framing of uprising as 
somehow, you know, property, just banal property damage or things that are nowhere equivalent to how we imagine and consider life and what the stakes are. So I think that part of what it's reminding me as a television viewer certainly is that how uh, angry I can get at television for the mediation that it, you know, inflicts upon us in moments that uh, we may be seeking, uh, you know, a kind of unmediated reportage or filming of events. So that's sort of where I'll start. Yeah, this is Suzanne. I would just jump in to say that, uh, you know, when I first moved to Austin in 2014, uh, it was the same week of the Ferguson protests, and I hadn't yet hooked up my cable package. And so I was witnessing that entire uh, event happen mostly through social media. And so for me, when you're just to sort of echo what what Karen was already saying, I think a lot of my frustration and, and part of the reason why I've increasingly moved away from television, forgetting my news content or trying to sort of create some sort of uh, transmedia flow for myself between social media uh, content and sort of cable news content is is because of that sort of layers of mediation and frustration with that. I will say that this week I have watched more network and cable news than I've watched probably in the past five years in, in this, over the span of a week. And so some of those frustrations have been renewed for me and very actively felt. And, and But also partially, I think what TV is, is maybe trying to do in this moment is making something that is systemic, existential and horrifying be packaged into something that is at least comprehensible for brief periods of time, which I think is damaging potentially. But also I I can understand why people are using that to sort of process. One of the things that's been eating at me um, as somebody who cut the cord, you know, the proverbial cord several years ago is how easy it was, how easy it is to not witness current events on television if you don't have live television. And to even get information via television, I had to go looking for it. I had to... Uh, find a somebody who could give me cable access. I had to you know, configure it through my home technologies that don't I don't normally consume live television. And then to go back to what Karen said and to connect it to what Suzanne said, there's something about television's mode of narration that emphasizes the frenzy of the visible, that emphasizes broken windows, that emphasizes throwing projectiles in the street that can never get at the heart of what's actually going on is that we do a disservice to George Floyd's death when we understand it as epiphenomenal and not part of a larger system of how television narrates race. Um, and there's a way in which treating it as epiphenomenal, the way that television seems to be treating it, is to misunderstand the hurt that goes unseen that is always so structural, that is always so present. The television's modes of narration don't capture as readily the live format. And so I've been thinking about the ways of the most visible elements of the protests feeding a particular narrative that treats George Floyd as something isolated. Um, and it's not. And it, of course it's not. And it's not on television either. I, I think it's it's interesting because to sort of piggyback on what Suzanne said, I remember in 2014 watching cable news and actually having a very difficult time locating any uh, action on what was happening in Ferguson that you had to, at least at the start of the 
protests. You had to actually, you had to actually go to Twitter and look through the live feeds and see people who were periscoping um, and on the streets, and 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 so that actually became a position to to take to witness, and that became sort of like my own position. And six years later, I still find myself doing that. There is, as y'all have mentioned, though the cable news and TV news have now picked up on the fact that this is something that should be looked at and that we should be witnessing. Of course, the framing of which of how we are to witness has shifted and continues to shift as these narratives change and the perspectives of the people who are in front of the action and sort of what all those things that they that they notice, all those things change too. So I find myself looking at the news, looking primarily at my MSNBC block with all of my people. And then I, you know, at the same time, take a take 45 minute break and go to Twitter and watch it and see how the things measure up, see what's similar, see what's different, what's not being discussed. And, and, and at, at the same time, those overlaps in between. So I think it's been an interesting thing to watch people who are new to the new to the act of witness. Uh, it's interesting watching people learn how to do it. It's interesting watching people take up like what the responsibility of it and the the weight of it and the burden of it and the fact that you don't sleep at typical times, which of course we weren't, you know, prior to this because of quarantine. But it's interesting watching people learn how to do that. I think that's more the thing that I'm coming at. Uh, it's it's just it's a it's a very different experience 6 years later with having seen this and done this so much to see people just learn how to do this and 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 all of the things that come with that. Yeah, Kristen, I think that's a, a really interesting way to think about the, the news coverage is act of witnessing. Um, in Los Angeles, all the local news stations are con- sort of constantly inviting comparisons to, to 1992 and Rodney King. And I think one of the biggest differences between 1992 and, and today with respect to that is the number of ways in which one witnesses. You know, when in the wake of the LA riots in 92, the only way in which we saw sort of the gaze of the news camera was fully aligned with the police, as Sasha Torres has eloquently written about. Um, and here we're seeing sort of scattered and frenetic and competing images in which the power of the camera's gaze is aligned with both the police, but then of also protesters and how people are adding their own performative commentaries on social media as they watch news footage or, or sort of clips of news footage on social media. So I think there's this interesting performative dynamic that we're now also bearing witness to and participating in. I think that that transmedial aspect that both Suzanne and Kristen mentioned is has been the actual experience, uh, as I think Kristen also mentioned, of what it's like to engage television, however we want to frame it, in the context of the pandemic, of the context of quarantine. Because frankly, I also didn't watch or could not watch much television in the sort of early weeks or months of it. I felt myself toggling between and through other platforms seeking out information, right? Whether or not it's watching a Facebook live feed of the governor of California making a new announcement about how we're proceeding to deal with the pandemic to then kind of seeking information on Twitter or on other social platforms. Um, and then eventually and belatedly making my way to television, even as comfort, I think it was really difficult because we have been in a state of vigil 
for an extended period of time now. I think since the lockdowns happened, that state of vigil or vigilance, at least for me, has interrupted the kind of phenomenal experience, the affective experience of watching and how to consume media. Uh, you know, so, so that's sort of where I would say that this is an extension, this moment and this scene, the protests that we're seeing now is an extension and very much connected to that aspect of, of viewing an affect as opposed to you know, something different. Yeah, and I would also just sort of, I, re I really like how you, you emphasize that sort of watching television as a vigilantly and how that has really confused our notion or renegotiated our notion to, to what is comfortable or what is pleasurable. Um, between the pandemic and the furor expressed in the wake of George Floyd's death, cultural feelings of existentialism and nihilism are very publicly pronounced right now with even a simple sort of how are you asking you know a, a friend how they are is a loaded question so yeah how do you all see television and, and our watching of tv related to these feelings how are we negotiating television as an instrument of pleasurable entertainment when nothing else about the state of the world feels pleasurable this is suzanne uh, it's so funny because Kristen, as you were talking about the kind of active cross-referencing that everyone is doing between social media feeds and news feeds, I'm absolutely doing that too. And it made me realize just how I've had the exact opposite responses, Karen, which is just that I have potted out and isolated all of my various screens and devices to serve various different effective purposes in my life. And I have left television to be a purely entertainment sort of space, right? And it's also not only space, but time. So that when I sort of sink into my couch at particular points of the day, that is when I allow myself to be diverted from everything that's happening in the world. And otherwise, my phone is, is set for information and social needs, and my computer is exclusively almost for work. Um, whereas I was not, I was having a much more sort of um, multifaceted relationship with all my devices and different streams of content before this all started. So, this can I just uh, make a quick comment that's sort of a, a silly comment actually is that one of the odd fantasies that I had, this is Karen, by the way, that I had at the beginning, and this is uh, my partner who's also a TV scholar or is the TV scholar in the household actually. <laughs> um, and I did uh, when we first went into lockdown was that we went through all of our streaming platforms and added shit to our watch list. And we just, add, we just fleshed out our watch lists. So, and it was like a kind of neurotic activity instead of going and hoarding groceries, instead of going and like hoarding toilet paper. Part of what we did was that we created these agendas for ourselves through watch lists. Like, oh, let's like put everything that we've ever wanted to see on Showtime on a watch list. And let's methodically try to work our way through that. Maybe that says more about our coping mechanisms than anything else, more broadly about media. But I did want to, you know, so I think that there was a moment where there was a kind of ambition now, there's at once the kind of the ambition to have, and, and indeed that misguided fantasy that we could somehow engage television almost separately from the other affects and feelings that were encroaching. And then, you know, take this time to like finally, you know, watch all the billions, which we are doing, by the way. And again, I want the opposite route. I'm only rewatching, rewatching everything, not watching anything new. I had to change my viewing diet, uh, if only because the real world felt too scary um, or scary enough. And I had been making my way through Ozark, which is about you know, the heroin trade, um, the Rust Belt. 
economic inequality and it it's bracing and current events are bracing enough. So I found myself retreating to sitcoms. And so I had kind of been dabbling in old sitcoms and I'm rewatching facts of life. Um, and there's something very comforting about the sitcom formula, like create the problem, resolve it, create the problem, resolve it. Um, I even tried to do that with law and order because of the, again, dun dun, and then it's the episodic structure such that it's resolved at the end for better end worse or worse but there's something about the ble- like the experience of current events as television that um the phenomenological stakes are uh pronounced especially when the one exp- experience bleeds into the other yeah i wish i, I envy those who can rewatch things i envy those <laughs> <laughs> Who can watch sitcoms? As many of you know, I do not. Um, I, I just it's it's just not my it's not my ministry. Um, but I think uh, for the for the most part, my sensibility is to sort of like run into it a little bit. Like I like the distance of knowing what's happening. Like television allows me that that space to sort of engage and see what's happening. And again, I, I'm the I'm that MSNBC brat. Like I'm the eight to ten every night we watch and we discuss what Rachel Maddow's hair looks like part of the fan base. Right. So that is super like that's super into my, my lane and my wheelhouse. And I like to sort of understand what's happening. And again, I think witnessing 2014 to now, and then of course 2016 happens. I think what that birthed in me was the desire to want to know and to understand and to process and to be able to, carry on in the same ways that I do in all other areas of my work to be able to do the same thing. So that part is one component. I honestly haven't found any television outside of the good fight that has allowed me to sort of move and feel. I just haven't been satisfied with anything. It's just like a never ending sweet tooth that has not been, um, that has not been satisfied. So the good fight is like my one lane. Other than that, I pretty much watch, read romance novels and that's that's it. I read romance novels, I watch MSNBC and I watch The Good Fight and it's done. So I'm cursed now. I'm glad you brought up The Good Fight, Kristen, just because I was thinking of, the, of how a number of series that have come out uh, in the wake of the pandemic have really played with our sort of sense of fantasy, maybe as a way to talk about sort of our escapist motivations for viewing or the lack of escapist motivations for viewing. You know, spoiler alert, the first episode of this new season of The Good Fight is this sort of one episode alternate reality in which Hillary Clinton is president, but somehow the Me Too movement never happened. And or it didn't sort of get, it never gained the traction that it that it did, and so it sort of sets the tone that we're in this mad, weird world, and seems very topsy turvy or very surreal. Um, but other shows too, Hollywood on Netflix is an incredibly sensationalized marriage between the characters and archetypes of 1940s Hollywood with sort of the woke TV of today. Or even Tiger King, which was its own stranger than fiction, you know, it's definitely exploited its own stranger than fiction sort of sensibilities. I think I have to say that I, I wasn't, again, like, like Kristen, I have had a very limited television diet or one that isn't, it's about the kind of insatiability. I honestly haven't been watching very much television in my response, in fact, to the pandemic, and that shocks me, truly, is that I don't watch television 
until actually what we would call primetime hours, even though there is no primetime anymore. It's almost like I resegregated my day, like I reallocated the my day, which was less structured than most folks because I'm an academic, right? And then made it into something extremely structured to the point where like I don't have din- television, I don't watch television until after dinner. And in fact, the only reason that I binge say Hollywood or even the show Upload on Amazon, which is a kind of interesting or bizarre, weird thing that just seemed like it happened to me instead of me selecting it. It's because I have to do it for for work or for for the podcast that I'm on. I have to watch what my podcast partner says we're going to be talking about that week. And, and, and so that's how I've engaged it. I found actually that for a period of time, television was being replaced by these very special events that were transpiring on Zoom or on YouTube, whether or not it was cast reunions or Stephen Sondheim's birthday, or like there was a kind of never ending series of events and eventness that was being reformulated around the new platforms that we were watching or streaming. And for a while that really displaced television. And, uh, And as I said, those cues that we accumulated remain largely unconsumed, so. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know if other people had that kind of same. I suppose restricted diet sentiment or the kind of lack of satisfaction. Uh, that same sensation of lack of satisfaction. Yeah, this is Suzanne. I wouldn't say my diet has been restricted. Uh, I'm admiring all of you who have managed that. But I will say that I had a similar experience where I found that I have been like coming back and doing a very same bat time, same bat channel kind of approach to my television <laughs> consumption that I had lost over the, the past couple of years. I think part of that is just about television is, is in some ways very good at marking time, or at least for me, historically, it was always yeah. very good for me to mark time. And like for, you know, to this day, I still think about like my bedtime was after the Muppet show and like my body was in one place and my body would go to another place the minute it was over. Um, and, and to me, I, television has had the same experience for me during this whole, these past couple of months, because in the morning, my body moves in front of my television. I'm forcing myself to move my body in front of my television and exercise and cut to, you know, 7 PM. It's like, 50 style dinner, dinner in front of the TV. And what are we going to watch that night for two hours? And then, you know, so I do think that part of this is about the sense of timelessness and marking time. But I also feel like part of that has been that I've become simultaneously more and less aware of my body and its relationship to television throughout this process. You know, it used to be that I would kind of just like veg out on the couch and, and sort of lose track of my time and my body. And maybe it's partially that we're all more conscious of how we're moving our bodies and how our bodies are operating in space these days. But I have found that I've, I've had a very different kind of relationship between TV and my, my physical body, um, even when I'm relaxing, using television to relax. But it's much more structured than it, than it was historically. In my house, as a as a as an aside, in my house, my partner and I are dealing with <laughs> with uh, getting older, and the um, the ways in which the pandemic and recent events have us in front of the television. It's become we're older now; we can't sit and assume that we're not going to be stiff. And so, there's a way in which television marking time it's the endlessness of it. It's like we remind ourselves that we need to get up and be in a different position a lot of the time uh, because I'm I'm not as spry as I used to be, alas. I've had to reposition the television in our bedroom, which we don't, we like, we have, like, we have a real kind of structured agreement of when to watch it and when not to watch it. 
Uh, and I have now insisted that it move from the kind of corner that it's in to de-emphasize like that there's a TV in this room to like make sure, making sure we roll it directly in front of me because my neck hurts. My <laughs> yes. neck will hurt yes. if I don't watch it. But yeah, but that kind of, I think that because the, the kind of whole framing or framework of a pandemic, right, sends one into like, again, a kind of hypervigilance about the physical body, about the phenomena we're experiencing, because so many of the kind of early accounts of this pandemic were people, let's say, threading their symptoms through on Twitter, right? So that yeah. sends you, I mean, at least it sent me into like, oh, is my throat scratchy? Oh, like all these different feelings. And so I think that that combined that hyper awareness of one's body as a result of this medical like crisis versus you know the things that we do which are actually fairly mundane marking time doing the things that we do in our everyday lives like watching television uh, coalesce and come together and create this hyper awareness and make us want to do different things or create slight shifts to account for our experience of physicality. Yeah, one of the first things that my household did once the pandemic started was lower the television to be at a more appropriate height in relation to the couch. And that was also part, like, we've been meaning to do this for months, and now we have the, like, perfect opportunity to do it. But it was also, like, let's think about our necks and think about our bodies and the kinds of vegetative positions we want to be in when when it's called for. I, I'm also thinking about this question about bodies as it plays out on screen. And I, I want to play radio host for a moment here and acknowledge some of the questions we've received via social media from our podcast audience. So it's like my best longtime listener, first-time caller imitations. Um, Maggie Hennefeld and Chris Becker both proposed questions about laughter and television as a medium of affective contagion, which I've kind of synthesized into the following. So... Television has always employed a number of strategies to elicit affective belonging within its viewers. Think of the classic sitcom Laugh Track, which is said to be contagious as it provokes audience laughter. Um, so how might TV studies speak to these tensions about affect, collectivity, and contagion in the wake of the pandemic? And how has television's inability to put live bodies next to one another maybe impeded some of this affective contagion or reframed it somewhat? Can I ask you to expand upon that last part? Yeah, I was thinking about this question while watching um, The Real Housewives of Atlanta, which recently, like many other reality series, had to film a Zoom reunion in which the housewives are sort of talking over each other in little boxes until Andy Cohen is finally able to mute them. And it kind of got me thinking about a really excellent piece you've written, Kristen, in Camera Obscura about Black women's affect on reality TV and the politics of respectability and how the lack or you know the lack of live bodies or a live studio audience or other mechanisms of of cueing or eliciting laughter or something like that have really changed maybe the tone of a lot of the shows that we watch or that we sort of typically gain pleasure from i mean i think the the beauty of the reunion is that the personalities fill up those little boxes in very similar ways right like the affect 
result in the very same sorts of fights, right? The only thing added is that rather than you have the scene where, you know, someone is offended or someone is upset and they walk off the stage um, and, you know, you have that lovely interstitial back behind the scenes, you know, seemingly raw edits of them trying to pull the person back to the stage and come on, it's really all right. As their hairdresser brushes their hair and fixes their dress. In this case, when Nene is done, she turns, like she doesn't even know how to work the computer. She shuts the computer down and puts a little note up and goes and has a drink or goes and talks to Greg or goes and does whatever. And so people can talk about her is different, right? Like she doesn't get the space to have her separate moment. We don't get the moment, we don't get the extra space for her to sort of comment on why she's upset. She has to call Portia on the phone and have a conversation where she tells Portia, don't put her on speakerphone. So, you know, so you have Portia talking and no, no voice hearing back, right? It actually, I think, made it much more entertaining because there, because the lack of, of liveness, the lack of the corporal bodies being together for the technology sort of forced them to be more of themselves than they could ever be and didn't allow the camera and the editing to, to protect them in the same ways that it would have otherwise. So I think actually it was much more genuine than uh, than it has been in the past. And I, I appreciated that. It was it was much more fun to observe. Yeah, I think that, there, I mean, in even watching some of this, these other special events, like the kind of technical difficulties that attended to the Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, right? And then seeing how, you know, some people were like, like straight up recording in their bathroom for better acoustics. Like we get to see how people accommodate the different technologies that have to be employed to deal with quarantine, to this newness, the kind of new situation in the world. But one thing that I wanted to kind of loop back to in the question that you asked, Hunter, is about, I don't know if it's contagion or symmetry of affect in experiencing what it is that we're watching, right? Like whether or not it's laughter, whether or not it's like engagement in these ways. One of the problems in our household is that my partner and I are in pursuit of two different streams of affect in this particular moment. Uh, and especially when the we started the lockdown, she was very much engaged in and wanted to only watch dystopian stuff that I suppose intensified the atmosphere of what we were going through. And I kept saying, I just want something pleasant and delightful, people with British accents falling in love or making cakes or whatever, redecorating a house. Like, I, you know, I was seeking out things that felt like they would leaven the experience, whereas she was seeking out things that, you know, she'd hoped would kind of intensify and perhaps sharpen her perception in the, in the context of the experience. So I think that in, in terms of like, you know, if contagion is such a loaded term to use around affect, right? In this I mean, moment, it's not the right metaphor. This is just yeah. what you know, we're thinking. But, but, but then certainly, I think that there is a sense of like you know, like what do you do or how do you negotiate when you are in quarantine with somebody who is not in a kind of space of affective compatibility with you? And what are the negotiations that you have to strike in order to like sometimes meet on the same affective plane? Yes, I'm going to build on what Karen said because <laughs> I have the same thing going on. My partner's very into robots sh- shooting one another and cyborgs, and I really just wanted Joe and Blair to have their butch femme moment on Facts of Life. Like that's that was my 
go to. It was comforting. And there's something about television's imperative for the affective contagion to involve the viewer in the laugh track. And there's something about in the moment of the quarantine where I don't want to catch his affect. I don't want to see the robots shoot each other up. There's something about we were watching things together and then we put an abrupt stop to it, which I thought was one of those things that was unique to the quarantine because we often watch things together, but we had very different affective needs at the moment anyway. Yeah. I mean, maybe instead of like effective contagion, I think one of the things that television is very invested in selling itself as this, as one of its sort of strengths as a medium is like building effective communities, even if you're not like physically co-present with each other. And so I'm an old, I still have cable. I've been watching a lot of live TV. And so part of this means that I've been watching a lot of these PSAs that Viacom CBS put out that are like the alone together PSAs that have been on like MTV. And basically it's like social distancing PSAs for the, for the youths, the youths on the, that might not be paying as, as, as vigilant attention to all of this as, as the olds. Um, And so what's so interesting to me in watching all of these is that one of the things that TV tries to be selling right now. So vehemently is that it can be a space of community for us to have a kind of effective communal experience together. Thus far, I've really only seen that that happen in a very comprehensive way around things like Tiger King that are not on live television, which is another interesting sort of wrinkle to all this. But I do think that there's something to be said, and you know, the media scholar in me, of course, immediately thinks about Sherry Turkle and thinking about like the the, the potential limits. Uh, who's obviously the book alone together has the same title as this PSA campaign. And so thinking about the ways in which I, I think maybe something to come out of this is to think about the ways in which like networked communities or even fan communities are not seen as sort of inevitably an impoverished mode of effective or networks, right? Um, that these things, even when we're sort of operating digitally with each other, and I don't know about everyone else, but I've been on a lot of Netflix parties recently. Um, yeah, so, that's, so, so, that, so, so part of this is about the ways in which we are trying to sort of mitigate and create these kinds of moments of affinity spaces or effective connections, even if we're not physically in the same space to have that kind of contagion or mutual experience with each other. So. I, I wonder how exhausted we all are of having to to be alone together with each other. Like, I, I mean, I, I I wonder how it, like the toll that it takes on your on your body. Like, there are all these articles about like the effects of Zoom and why Zoom makes you so sad and all these things. And I I just wonder how how exhausted we all are of having to be together but not together. And so, if you have to watch something with someone virtually. It's not just watching with someone. You have to talk with them about what you're watching and you have to sort of like empty your brain and share with them. And like the process of that is exhausting, like to me. And, and maybe, I mean, I, I fully acknowledge my full, all my introvert credibility is out here on this. But I just imagine for those who are like more into that, like how exhausting must that be? Well, look, I'm an extrovert, and the fact that, like, work and leisure have utterly collapsed yeah. in these ways, right? You know, like, Zoom is being used for TV viewing parties and also for every lecture that I'm giving. So yeah. I think part of this comes down to platform, too. Like, there is a sort of fatigue around particular platforms being used for more to build these kind of effective communities. 
I mean, the, the part of the thing I like about, like, the one thing that I do that's strange to me is, like, this Instagram Live sweat fest thing. This Ryan Eppington does this dance class three times a week where you essentially, like, mimic life things and, and dance around in a robe and a, and a remote control as your microphone. It's a strange thing in that we're all doing this. There are 5,000 of us maybe doing it all at the same time. But what's interesting is I don't see anybody. I see comments. And somehow that feels like a nice sort of medium where I don't have to see your faces and watch you do this and see how interested you are in it. You don't have to see me being completely not interested, but needing to laugh at myself for doing like, you know, the Nancy Pelosi clap while, you know, walking around. The <laughs> there is like, there is something about that structure that gives me both the catharsis to, of moving the body and moving my body and sort of getting out of my head space for 50 minutes, but also, and, and doing it with people, but not doing it with people. There's a thing about that that I think helps. And I think is for some of us may be very well, may be the thing that keeps us from cratering into either of those dark spaces. Quick question for each of you. What's been the most surprisingly comforting show you've watched since the pandemic started? Surprisingly comforting or rewatched? Law and order, and I'm surprised if only because the content is so at odds with the form, which is to say the content is very much like current events in terms of police brutality, violence in cities, racially motivated violence, um, structural racism. All of these things are very much part of the content. And I thought it would hit too close to home. And at the same time, the form is so comforting that you know exactly how episodes progress the beats and the arcs are all very, very familiar. I find it, um, it's one of those shows, and I'm not necessarily a fan of this argument of television that's pacifying as a, as a matter of course, but there's something to the form of it that mitigates the landing of the content in ways that have really caught me off guard. Yeah. The surprisingly part is the difficult part, because I think that obviously, you know, restaurants on the edge, meaning on the edge of like the map and on the edge of closing down is totally within my wheelhouse of comfort. But I have to say that the show upload again, which I said just sort of happened to me. Like I, it's almost like I didn't expect to watch it uh, somehow became this kind of comforting amalgam of at once a little bit of the good place, a little bit of I don't know, um, some kind of like dystopian capery thing. And everyone on it just seemed so nice and Canadian. Like that it was it was almost like that aspect of it was shocking to me. Like the, the main character, the lead guy is just a super, super basic white guy. Like if Ryan Reynolds became like a brunette, uh, I don't know, became even like became actually nice or something. I don't know. Somehow <laughs> that whole spectrum, that whole set of affects and the kind of something that engaged with a slightly dystopian world, but from a comedic perspective and that gave us the kind of promise of some sort of digital afterlife was the thing that, I don't know, inaugurated a sense of comfort for me and got me weirdly to just like start uploading all my shit onto like the cloud so that all my memories would be there just in case. I think for me, it would probably be we're here on HBO. I think in terms of in terms of a series that I just sort of I sort of tried out and I, I initially was sort of like, OK, this is a, this is sort of queer eye. You know, it's in that kind of Netflix feel good 
uh, queer eye kind of vein, um, but was doing slightly more complex things than I expected it to um, as that kind of glossy reality programming. Um, and I think it's that coupled with the fact that I've also been very avidly watching Drag Race this season. And that has sort of climaxed right at the same time that uh, we've, we've all been in quarantine. So I think those are the two that have been most surprising to me. A lot of my other stuff has been mostly like, yeah, old reruns of things. Those are the only new things I've been watching. Surprise is the tricky word there, Hunter. I don't know. <laughs> I would think, I mean, the, the one thing that I was surprised, I don't know if it was comforting because I don't necessarily know if that's what I, that, if that's an affect that I need, um, weirdly. Um, but I watched For All Mankind <laughs> and it was the first five episodes. I was like, this is, this is a, an exercise in diligence. Like, I'm just going to sit here and let this show do whatever it's doing. And it was, it took its time, but there was something about it. Like the, the beats of it that were just very sort of like, we're just building this alternate foundation of world that we're, we actually make it, we do these other things in space that we didn't do and all these things. There's something about that, that I think really took and I also will like lay out that if, for, in terms of pleasure, I do like to look at Joel Kinnaman. And there is something really nice about him, like in a uniform with aviators, and like I just and in a in a, an astronaut costume. There's it's just it it does it does its work. Um, but then you know I think it it, tur- it turned in episode six and got really kind of interesting. So I don't know, like in terms of something that surprised me in terms of the fact that I would like it because that is not a series that would call to me, but in, but a show that does that I remember having very strong feelings about it. I'm like okay we're going to take our time with this I don't want to I don't want to watch it all in one because first you, it's impossible but second like it feels like something that you should really just pro- like take time to process that certainly um, would be my example and then of course Rachel Maddow I just I mean it's she if, comf- if if there is a comfort thing that would be that like I can guess what she's going to talk about based on what her Twitter feed looks like and that's always kind of fun Mine is, I've been rewatching a lot of old cycles of America's Next Top Model, in part because there's been, the two J's have been doing a sort of like Friday, every Friday at noon, they get together on Instagram television to dish about a particular cycle. So the paratextual element and the sort of revisitation of it has been sort of the surprising hook for me. And that is, oh, I do kind of want to rewatch a lot of those episodes and and get my mid-2000s nostalgia on i don't know if i'm ready for that kind of nostalgia yet so that brings us to the end of today's episode i i really want to thank you all for speaking to these important issues so once again hollis griffin suzanne scott karen tongson and Kristen warner thank you for your willingness to chat today on behalf of my fellow co-organizers lynn joyrich and brandy monk payton um, i also want to thank our sponsors SCMS, Acamedia, the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame, as well as Chris Becker, Bill Kirkpatrick, and Todd Thompson for all of their help with recording and editing, and Todd Thompson for providing the music for this podcast series. Our next episode is on technology. We're going to be thinking about how old and new technologies are impacting TV production, textuality, and reception during the pandemic. And we're very excited to feature on this episode Michelle Cho from the University of Toronto, Amar Christian from Northwestern University, Miles McNutt from Old Dominion University, Linda Marugan from Fordham University, and Lisa Parks from MIT. 
And we are also very much interested in hearing your thoughts about the most important and interesting issues for these topics. So please continue to send in questions and thoughts either through email, talkingtelevisioninapandemic at gmail.com, through Twitter using the hashtag TalkTVInAPandemic, or uh, through Facebook. So you can join the Acamedia Facebook group and then post questions through there. I'm Hunter Hargraves with Talking Television and a Pandemic, and thanks so much for listening. Please stay healthy and vigilant out there.